The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com. Good morning. The scripture reading today comes from Luke chapter 17. You can find that in your pew Bibles in front of you on page 876. If you don't have a Bible, please feel free to take a pew Bible home with you today as a gift. Again, we're starting on page 876, Luke chapter 17, verse 11, and we'll be reading through chapter 18, verse 8. Luke 17, verse 11. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee, and as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers, who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, Were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Rise and go your way, your faith has made you well. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And he said to the disciples, The days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, Look there, or look here, and do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it but whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night, there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, Where, Lord? He said to them, Where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not to lose heart. He said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man, And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says, and will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? This is the word of God. Heavenly Father, it's an incredible thing that you have given us this morning to consider about the kingdom of your Son. Lord, we pray for your Holy Spirit to help us. Help me, Lord, please, to teach this faithfully, clearly. Help us all to understand what you're saying about your kingdom and to respond as we should. Lord, um, help us see the way you see so that we can be um, more fully, more completely yours in how we think, how we live. Show us what you have for us this morning. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we're, we're just continuing our walk through the Gospel of Luke. It's an incredible account of the life of Jesus. I'm just, I feel so privileged to be able to watch Jesus, listen to Jesus with you, 
as we go through this incredible book. And this morning, we're going to learn something about his kingdom. I think Jesus wants us to see in these three episodes how to see his kingdom. So as we begin, just what do you think of when you think of the word kingdom? You probably think of a king, someone who's in charge, and of course that's not wrong, but I think I want you to feel it a little larger than that, so I'll try this out on you. Imagine you were driving into a major American city, and you had a couple of questions on your mind. Imagine you were asking, what's the focus here? What's getting the attention? Imagine you were asking, what are the values of this place? What is valued? And imagine you were looking for, what do the people serve? What do they seem to give themselves to? Imagine you were thinking about those things as you drove into Los Angeles, for instance. Maybe you finally get out of the traffic. The first one, you'd be like, well, we value traffic, right? You finally get out of the traffic, you're at the Staples Center, and there the billboard is of the king. And who am I talking about? LeBron James, obviously, right? <laughs> He's the king. And so you're in L.A., and you're, and you're thinking, you might think, could someone be forgiven for thinking, hey, in this city, we value sports and entertainment. The kingdom of sports and entertainment, what do people think about value, serve, participate in? Well, that's, you could say more, but that's not wrong, is it? Let's say you did it again. You're, you're touring all, all sorts of places. You're in Washington, D.C., and you see monuments. And you could think, this city values, serves political power. That's what's going on here, a kingdom of political power. Or maybe you went to Vegas. How do you like that one? What's valued there? Wow. Uh, pleasure. Pleasure, maybe. A kingdom of pleasure. So, yes, a kingdom has a king, of course. But it's more than just there's a king. It's what's king of the heart, what's loved, what's valued, and that's going to show itself in the practices of life, we serve our king. Everyone serves their king. The question is, who is your king? So a huge con Christian conviction, right? Who is king of kings and lord of lords? Who, who is that? Jesus is king, right? That's what we say right now. Right now is a king right now? He is king Right now, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. But then the next question, where do you see it? Where do you see it? And from a certain perspective, it can be hard to see that he is, in fact, right now, King. Might not be obviously apparent when you drive through Los Angeles, D.C., or Vegas, that Jesus is King. Huh. So there's something about what to look for, how to see, what does it mean that he's king. So in our passage today, and if you're feeling like, wow, that was a big chunk to bite off, it's just because I believe in you all so much, okay? Um, in our passage today, you're going to get three episodes about how to see the kingdom. That's why I put these things together. Three episodes about how to see the kingdom, um, the first one, you're going to see Jesus with this interaction with the lepers. That's how you see the kingdom now. The kingdom now. The kingdom here. The second episode, you're going to hear teaching from Jesus. And that's about how the kingdom is coming. It's here, but it's not all the way here yet. One day it will be all the way here. So the first one's kingdom now, kingdom here. Second one's kingdom coming. The third one, you get this parable about prayer, and that's about kingdom delayed. Kingdom delayed. It's here, it's coming, but it's delayed. And with each one, you get Jesus not only telling you how to see his kingdom, but he's telling you how to respond in light of how you see the kingdom. You see it this way, this is how to respond. You see it this way, this is how to respond. You see it this way, it's how to respond. And so what should we work on as we work on this text together? See the kingdom as he's showing it to you, and then most of all, as you see it, respond in the way that he's calling you to respond. So I've got four points today, help you uh, 
hang your thoughts on kingdom now, kingdom coming, kingdom delayed, and last one, kingdom given. Kingdom now, kingdom coming, kingdom delayed, kingdom given, and we'll think about how to respond. All right, kingdom now, let's jump right in. Chapter 17, verse 11, uh, the last conversations we've been going on with from 15 to 17, those have kind of ended. We're on a transition now. Jesus is back on the road to Jerusalem. So it reminds you of the big picture of what he's doing. He's going to walk into the teeth of the kingdom of the people who want to kill him. He's going to walk there intentionally, and he's going to mysteriously, amazingly establish his own kingdom. He's on the way to Jerusalem. And then Luke says, hey, he's passing along between Samaria and Galilee. So you read that, and you're like, okay, who cares? Well, here's one reason it might be interesting. Who might you meet if you walk near Samaria? It's not a trick question, right? Help me out, right? Samaritans. Oh, what do you know about them? Are Jews and Samaritans friends? No. There's deep animosity here. Number one, there's a racial animosity. So a local Jew would think Samaritans are, it's, it's rather racist. But during the exile, Samar- uh, J- Jewish folks who were around interbred with other ethnicities. And, uh, and, and part of that result was the Samaritans. And so it's like, you're, you're not all the way us. It's, it's racist, but that's part of the divide. You're not all the way us. A second part of the divide is the Samaritans kind of created their own sort of kind of religion. In comparison to the, what we would call the Old Testament and the truth that is in there, it's a little cultish. It's not the same. It's not the true religion or way to understand God. So between a racial divide and a religious divide, there's divide. Moreover, people are just sinners and we're mean to one another, right? <laughs> That's what we do. So there's, just, there's this hatred, this distance. You read John 4 and you'll see that, that picture. And like how shocking it was that Jesus asked a Samaritan woman for a drink. Everybody, what are you doing talking to her, touching what she touches? Ah, Um, There's this divide. Keep that in mind. Moreover, as he enters this village, who meets him? Verse 12. Ten lepers. Oh, let's remember what that would be like specifically in this context. I'm no expert on this, but supposedly there's a bacteria that attacks the nervous system so the body no longer protects itself as it should. And it slowly warps, rots, and is destroyed. So you, um, they're coming apart internally, visually. Not only that, it's highly contagious and highly dangerous. And so even in God's law, if someone is established to have leprosy, where do they need to move? Away. It's terrible for them. It's good for everybody else so they don't all get leprosy. But you, you can see, feel what it would be like to be a leper. Look at even how they talk to Jesus. Where are they? They stood at, end of verse 12, at a distance They can't come near. Imagine this identity of yourself as dirty, unclean, cursed, and untouchable. And there's one thing everyone wants from you, and that is, stay away from me. Moreover, your body is wasting away. And this is just utter despair. This would be horrible beyond anything most of us have ever experienced utter despair, but look, they come up to Jesus, and they lift up their voices, verse 13, and what do they say? Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And what we see here is that Jesus' reputation has preceded him. What does he tend to do with sickness? Heal it. He has wiped sickness out nearly from some villages. He heals it. And they have heard of this, and so they call him master, and probably that title means you have authority and power. See my problem? You can fix it. And then this next phrase, what are they asking for? Jesus, master, what? Have mercy on us. Well, you read through Luke. We're gonna see, we've seen it in the past. We're going to see it in the future. You read through Luke, and these are the irresistible words for Jesus. They're irresistible. When you realize you have no hope and you can't do it on your own, and you look to him and you say, have mercy on me, he just says, oh. You you hit something in there with him. And he he just can't help, it seems, 
like, but to respond with mercy. Look what he says in verse 14. I love this. When he saw them, he said to them, what? Go and show yourselves to the priests. That's curious. What might he have said? Be healed. Be healed. That's right. That's right, brother. That, that, be healed. We kind of expect that. But instead, it's just go show yourself to the priests. Why? What does that mean? Well, if you had leprosy and by some incredible miracle you beat it and you were healed from it, that has to be established by authorities so that you can enter back into community. So they say, you're clean, move back in, come near again. So it has to be established by witnesses, the, the authoritative witnesses, that you are indeed clean. And so they're at a distance. Imagine the scene. They're at a distance. Jesus, have mercy. They're pitiful. They're broken. They're scarred. Have mercy. And he says, go show yourself to the priests. There's this moment. The group stands there. I don't know. They look around each other. And in this story, what do they do? Okay. Walking along to go see the priests. And as they walk along... Joe looks at Fred. Your nose is better than I ever dreamed it could be. Your, your skin is, they start. And then you're freaking out, right? I mean, what would it be like to have your 10 leper friends all freaking out because, ah, we're healed. We're healed. Wow, we're healed. And, you know, I just can't help it. They're going to who? The priests. And who hates and wants to kill Jesus? The priests. And who's about to get a group of guys going, hey, we had leprosy. Look, it's healed. How'd that happen? Jesus. <clears throat> wow. But one guy wants more than just healing. One guy wants more than just a healed body and fresh skin. One guy wants more, and he goes back. What does he want? Look at verse 15. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and look at 16, and he fell on his face, where? At Jesus' feet. He wants more Jesus. The sweetest part of the story isn't just healing, it's Jesus to be there in front of him and to praise him and to thank him. That's what he wants. And look at what Luke throws at you at the end of 16. Now he was a Samaritan. What? No. The nine Israelites didn't come back. And the one who? Samaritan? He's the one that wants Jesus. That's why we've been calling our Luke series the Upside Down Kingdom. It, it didn't work like you expected. He didn't act like you expected. The people who came weren't who you expected. It's, he's king, but it's, it, it knocks us over. It, it surprises us. Think about this. Who does Jesus give this time to? Lepers. Is it Herod and all his friends that Jesus is hanging out with right now? Is it the great ones of the world getting this interaction with Jesus? Who is it? It's the According to the world's standards, it's the very bottom of the barrel. And that's who is looking to Jesus for mercy, and that's who gets it. Moreover, does it tend to be Israelites who've received the scriptures and have the, the priests and the promises? Does it tend to be the, the priests and the Pharisees who love Jesus? No, and even here, ten were healed. And who comes back to worship the Samaritan, this is upside down. This is not what we expect. And look what Jesus says, verse 17. Jesus answered, 
We're not ten cleansed. Where are the nine? That's a rhetorical question. Where should they be? They should be in a big row all on their faces in front of Jesus. That's where they should all be. Only one is there. You know, it's interesting. Nine of them went to the priests and I guess the temple to be cleansed and to worship there. And one went to the real priest and the real temple. He's in front of Jesus. Then Jesus says, Was no one found to return and and give praise to God except this foreigner? That word foreigner means another race, not an Israelite. And so what's the shock? Who left and didn't come back? The Israelites. Who came? The not Israelite. You know, there's a section of the temple, the Gentiles were allowed to go into part of it, but then there's a part that divides them out, and um, you can't go in anymore. You know what it says on the wall there? No foreigners. This word. This kingdom's upside down. Who's in front of the true priest at the real temple? A foreigner. And that's good news for me and you, because as far as I know, most of you, according to these categories, are what? <laughs> You're foreigners. Okay. This upside-down kingdom. And look at how Jesus responds. He said to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Your faith has, in the Greek, is your faith has saved you. Sozo, it saved you. So what do you learn? Um, what should we see from this Samaritan? How does he respond to this experience of the kingdom? He has the kind of faith in Jesus that worships Jesus, delights in Jesus, thanks Jesus. A faith that worships Jesus. He trusts Jesus' word. He praises Jesus. You know, I think this story really helps verse 20 stand out. Because look what the Pharisees ask him. The Pharisees are always around. Haven't you seen that? 15 to 17. He's talking to Pharisees' disciples, Pharisees' disciples. They're always around. They saw this, guaranteed. They saw this, and then what are they asking him? Verse 20. Being asked by the Pharisees, when the kingdom of God would come, aren't you a little bit like, if you saw Jesus heal ten lepers and one of them totally healed, come back and worship, if you saw that, would you go, I just don't know when the kingdom of God's going to come. I can't see it anywhere. Um, it's, I think that's the way you're supposed to feel about this question. You're supposed to say, really? How many miracles have these people seen and heard of? Thousands. When's the kingdom going to come? Really? Why can't they see it? This is part of why we can't see it sometimes. They're looking for the wrong kind of kingdom. They're looking for fortresses. They're looking for economies. They're looking for nation states. They want armies. They want a kingdom. When does that kingdom come? Look what Jesus says. He answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. And I think what he means by ways that can be observed is, Castles, fortresses, commercials, propaganda flyers, right? News channels. It's not coming like that. Verse 21, nor, the, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, what does he conclude? For behold, the kingdom of God, where is it? According to Jesus in this first episode. It's right here. It's in the midst of you. And who is he probably pointing to? This, fair, this Samaritan is worshiping me. There's the kingdom. His heart's changed. He's healed. And he has a faith that worships Jesus. Can you see the kingdom? Depends where you're looking, isn't it? You, you can look some places in this world, read some news articles, and be like, ah, it's not here. Hey, we've grown. That's, there's, there's a grain of truth to that. But I'll tell you what I saw as I sang these first three songs with you this morning. The kingdom is right here. It's in people who worship Jesus. That's the kingdom. 
So in this first picture, you see Jesus saying, the kingdom is here. And what's the proper response then? What did he say to the Samaritan? Your faith has saved you. The kind of faith that worships Jesus. So let's plug this in together so you can take some things home, right? The kingdom is here. What's the proper response? Faith that worships Jesus. Can you see the kingdom? Do you worship the king? That's this first episode. But that's not all Jesus is going to say because there is something too, right? If this is all that the kingdom ever becomes, I mean, aren't you waiting? This is great, but aren't you waiting for more? Don't we want a day where Jesus is explicitly, massively, totally, institutionally king? To where you don't have to have eyes of faith to see the kingdom anymore. It's just, it's everywhere. It is. Yes, we want that. And so Jesus begins to then talk about how the, even though the kingdom is here, the kingdom is going to come. And that's what he says next. Verse 22. He said to the disciples, the days are coming when you would desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you'll not see it. How many of you, you can sit in that verse right now? You want to see Jesus come back? Yeah, I hope that's all of you. I want to see him come back, and we're waiting. He's not here yet. When are you going to come? We have to wait for it. There'll be a longing delay. Verse 23, and they will say to you, I don't know who they are, look there, look here. You know, every once in a while you'll find this guy who says, I'm Jesus Christ returned. Yeah, and that should be our response. Did you hear it? Ha! Right? Okay? That's ridiculous. Because Jesus later says, as lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. Okay? If somebody has to tell you Jesus came back, that means he didn't come back. Turn on this channel. Jesus came back. Yeah, no, he didn't. Okay? When he comes back, nobody will have to tell you. It'll be real obvious. He's back. He's back. Don't sweat the counterfeits. You'll know when I come back. You'll know. But look at what he says here in verse 26. We've seen the kingdom come surprisingly, mercifully. And Jesus' words here are very sober. When the kingdom comes explicitly, it will be devastating. It will be devastating. It will be overwhelming. Verse 26 just as it was in the day, days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Huh. Jesus appeals to one of the massive stories of judgment of the whole Bible. Um, and if you read that text, by the way, what book is that in? Noah? Genesis. So if you want to learn more, our Bible study on Genesis Wednesday nights. Okay, this is a subtext. You should, yeah, you should come study Genesis. He appeals to this story of judgment um, with Noah. And if you read the Genesis text, the author there will make it really clear that everybody around that time, what were they like? What were they like? What does the Bible tell you about those people? They were awful. They were violent, they were wicked, they were evil. And so God witnesses their evil and comes in judgment. What's surprising about this text is Jesus doesn't draw your attention to how wicked they were. Now one reason for that is his audience would have been like, yeah, we know that. There's another reason. What does he draw your attention to? What are people doing in the days of Noah? Did you see what it was? Every day Life. Keep that in your pocket. Everyday life, it seemed normal. You know what? If every time you sinned, you got like an electric shock or something, ah, you know, we do that with, I don't do it. Some people I've heard of do it with their pet dogs, okay? Don't do that. Ah! If you, every time you sin, ooh, you know, you felt a little, this is, oh, if this, you don't get that. You sin and you look up and you go, oh, nothing really happened. Maybe it's not that big of a deal. Oh, nothing happened. Hey, I made it out all right. Everyday life just kept going, kept going the way you were going. And then out of nowhere, what happens? Judgment and destruction. The flood came, Jesus says, and destroyed them all. Then look at the first word of verse 28. What's it say? 
likewise. Jesus is now going to appeal to the other massive story of judgment in the book of Genesis. The city of uh, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, now pay attention. What does he draw your attention to? What were they doing? Eating and drinking, buying and selling, planning and building. Now, again, if you read the text in Genesis, the author of Genesis will tell you those cities were wicked beyond belief. And they deserve judgment. Jesus doesn't mention that. Why? Again, his audience already knows that, but he's doing something differently. What does he draw your attention to? What was happening? Everyday life. Verse 29, but on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. Verse 30, what are the four, first four words of verse 30? So will it be when I come back. Jesus' return will be devastating. Everyday life will be going on, and then all of a sudden, massive unbelievable judgment. What are we supposed to do with this? It can be hard to accept, can it? If you take it seriously, it's very sober, very, very painful, very unnerving. You know, some people say, have you ever heard this? I've heard it so many times, I think it's worth saying in a sermon. Some people say, um, I'm okay with the God of love of the New Testament, but I can't stomach the God of judgment and wrath of the old. Have you ever heard that? Maybe you've thought it, okay? To where we're almost embarrassed of stories like Noah and the flood or Sodom and Gomorrah. Do you sense that Jesus is embarrassed about those stories here? Do you sense that like God was bad in the Old Testament, then in between the two, Jesus went to counseling, <laughs> simmered down a little, and now it's a story of love? Let me just tell you, there is no one in the universe more loving than the God of the Old Testament, okay? And let me tell you this, the world has never seen wrath and judgment like it will when Jesus comes back. And if we were to say that, Jesus, we're dividing these two things up and we're dividing the Godhead up, we can't handle Noah and we can't handle Sodom and Gomorrah, Jesus would look them in the face and say, I'm going to do it again, I'm going to do it again. Oh, staggering. Two things we need to remember here. Two things. If this seems hard to accept. It, it, listen, it, nobody dances through this passage, right? If you're like, hey, great. You're not hearing this. This is sobering. This is staggering. This is fearful. Two things to remember. Number one, God is and always has been and always will be holy. God is holy. Which means, what does God love? Righteousness. Truth. His own glory. To what extent does he love it? Eternally. What you love most is always, it's always going to fit in with what you hate. If you love something, you're going to hate its opposite. If you love your kid, you're going to hate the destruction of your kid. What does God hate? Wickedness, evil, rebellion, sin. And we heard it from the first chapters of the Bible. We hear it all through the Bible. The wages of sin is what? Death. Death. And then we, we look at stories where people sin, 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 sin. And God waits and waits and waits, and they sin, 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 sin. And then he finally brings, what? Death. And we go, what are you doing? He's saying, you just let my patience think. Or you took my patience as meaning I don't care. And that is not the way to take God's patience. He's holy. Another thing to remember, if we think God owes people grace, we might not understand grace. In fact, I think I can say it a little stronger. If you think God owes people grace, you don't understand grace. Okay? Grace is love that you don't deserve. And so just to be frank, I deserve fire and sulfur. Me. Well, you're a pastor. You, uh, uh, so? 
I've sinned against God in countless ways. If I got what I deserved, I would get judgment. That's what I deserve. I deserve the flood. I deserve the fire and sulfur. That's what I deserve. But thank God, right? Thank God he's a God of grace. Did he owe me salvation? Could I grab God by the collar and say, give me what I deserve? Oh, don't ever do that. <laughs> do you really want that? No, please have, remember this, remember the lepers. What do we say? Have mercy on me. And he gives grace, undeserved love. Now we can get confused because does God command us to show grace to others? Absolutely. Do others deserve your grace? In one sense, no. In another sense, yes. They deserve it because God has commanded you to give them grace. And the logic of that is because you have received grace. But God is not out there receiving anyone's grace. <laughs> Undeserved love? He does not have to give grace. And the minute he does, you're out of Christianity. It's not, it's not salvation by grace anymore. It's works. When we remember these things and humble ourselves before them, God is holy. He does not have to give grace. Listen, it should always be painful that judgment is coming. Read Romans 9. It was painful for the Apostle Paul. This is not a dance we do. Um, and yet, don't we celebrate justice? You tired of human slavery in the world? You, you tired of uh, racial injustice? Are you tired of all sorts of poverty, abuse of the poor? Do you want God to come and end evil? Uh, I don't have a slide for this, but I think it was Tim Keller who once said, without God's day of judgment, there's no hope for the world. We need him to come and clean it up. But if there's a day of judgment, where's the hope for me? I want him to come clean up the world, but I've done evil. We'll see how that gets resolved. But Jesus is saying, isn't he? When the kingdom comes, it'll come explicitly, and it will be devastating. It will. Okay, a question. Why did Jesus highlight normal life instead of the evil of those people? Why did he do that? What is he doing? Look at verse 31. On that day, let the one who's in the housetop with his goods in the house not come to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember, who do you need to remember? Do you know this lady? Lot's wife. Keep reading your Old Testament, folks. Jesus is going to refer to it. You need to remember it. And this word remember is like meditate upon, consider. Hmm, what does this mean? Remember Lot's wife. Jesus is saying your knee-jerk response to that moment when he returns tells you something about your heart. Where does your heart go? Does it go, oh, but I love these kingdoms here. Or does it go, heck with these. Come on, Jesus. Are you going to have the sense when you think of this world and its kingdom's ending, do you have the sense of going, oh, man? Or do you go, let it burn. Come on, Jesus. Check your heart. Don't go back and be like, oh, but this is what life is really about. Remember Lot's wife. What did she do when she was on that cusp of salvation from judgment? I mean, angels in that story are literally like leading her out of the city. And what does she do? You remember? She turns back, I want my Sodom and Gomorrah. That's what her heart said. And what happened to her? She got salted. <laughs> I don't know what to say. But she got judgment. And so why should we remember Mrs. Lot? Why should we remember that? Check your heart. Check your heart. What's your focus? Look at verses 34 to 37. Jesus says here, I tell you in that night there'll be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There'll be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, where, Lord? 
Well, what do you see with two in one bed, one taking the other left? What do you see with two women working, one taking the other left? What are these people both engaging in? Everyday life, that was the point. Everyday life, everybody's doing everyday life. And yet when Jesus comes back, the people doing everyday life, even together, don't go to the same places. They don't go to the same places. One will be left, in this context, to enjoy Jesus' kingdom. The other will be taken. Taken where? And these are Jesus' words, not mine. Where, Lord? And he said to them, what did he say? Help me out. Where the corpses, the vultures will gather. Ha! What does that mean? Let's just sum it up with judgment. So, let's back up. Where's the kingdom in one sense? We learn from the Samaritan. Here. What's the response? Faith that worships Jesus. In another way of looking at it, when's, where's the kingdom? Well, it's coming. It's not, it's not here yet. When it does, it'll be devastating. What's the response? Well, we've seen the na- negative. Who do you not want to be like? Lot's wife. And so Jesus is saying then that in the midst of everyday life, which everyone is involved in, stay focused on the kingdom. Stay focused on him. Don't let the not bad things of everyday life distract you from loving the kingdom. Do you see that? These are not evil things, but they distract. And so Jesus warning to his disciples, he doesn't say to them, hey, don't be like the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. He says, don't be distracted by the good things of this life so that you're tempted away from focus on my kingdom. Wow. So how should you respond here knowing that the kingdom's going to come? Focus. Focus. Keep doing everyday life, yeah? Is that even an option to leave that anyway? Keep doing it everyday life. Keep doing it with love for the kingdom, for the sake of the kingdom, with a focus on the kingdom. And then when the king comes back, what should you do with this everyday life? I'm out. Mic drop. Going home. All right. Third episode. The reason I included this, I know I'm stretching time and and space and your mind with content but it fits with the previous two. It fits. It's an answer to this continuing idea of how we wait for the kingdom. Because in between it's here and it's coming, that means it's also delayed. It's hard that it's delayed, isn't it? It's hard. In one sense, we have the glories of the kingdoms come and we celebrate and we worship and we love and we see it and we live it. In another sense, we're like, when are you going to come? This is terrible here it's cursed it's broken we're in this delay we wait what are we supposed to do with this how do we make it jesus answers that right here verse 18 18 verse 1 he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to what folks pray and what else don't lose heart don't let the waiting crush you down to where you think it'll never come or that it never came in the first place Don't lose heart. It's here, and it's going to come. And a major way we don't lose heart is to pray. Do you ever lose heart over your praying? You pray, and it feels like your words, you know, get about this high and then nosedive into the carpet. Did anybody hear that? Knock, knock, knock. (laughs) Is this working at all? And so Jesus tells this very colorful story. We don't need to read it through. I'll just kind of retell it. Two characters in this parable. Who's the first one? The judge. And what's he like? He's explicit about himself. He even says it. Does he fear God? No. Does he give, does he give a care for any human being? No. He's a judge who's utterly selfish. Sadly, this is a main story of the world as we wait. People with power meant to bring justice for others who don't care about God and don't care about others and serve only themselves. That's what this man is like. And then the other character, who is it? A widow. And who's representing this widow in the judge's court? 
She is, which means she's totally and utterly alone and vulnerable. What kind of power does she have in this setting? None. He's wicked and has all the power, and he doesn't care that he's wicked. He says that. I don't fear God. I don't care about man. And what does she have? Injustice and no power. And yet, in this story, what's the one thing she does? She keeps at it. You need to give me justice. You need to give me justice. You need to give me justice. And what's so funny, I think Jesus' listeners would, would have kind of smirked when he says this, because the judge talks about her coming to him continually as if she's a boxer who keeps hitting him in the nose. She's going to beat me down. She's, the widow is Muhammad Ali, just stinging like a bee. Boom, boom, boom. And so finally, because she keeps at it, he's buffeting, she's buffeting him down. He can't take it anymore. And so he finally gives her what she wants. And so what are we supposed to do with this parable? It's an argument from the lesser to the greater. So in this lesser situation, if you got this, the idea is, how much more in this situation would you get that? And so again, does the judge care about the widow? No, he's wicked, he's evil. Does the widow have any place, any rights? No, she has nothing. Did she still get something? Why? She kept asking. How much more now? Is your father in heaven a wicked judge who doesn't care about you? Jesus used the word elect. He used the word elect in this passage. That means chosen. Who chose you to belong to him? Your father in heaven chose you. Do you come into his presence as this nobody, nothing, with no voice? Or do you come into the presence of one who has chosen you and brought you near and wants to hear from you? Yeah! Our situation is far better. Moreover, what, what's your name as you come? Hopeless, vulnerable widow with no one to speak for? No, you're a child of God. You come in the name of Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. So if she in this situation even still got something from asking, what's the idea? How much more will you receive what God has for you when you pray? How are you going to make it in this time of delay? Pray. Pray. Pray the kingdom. Look at verse 7. And will not give justice to will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Does God hear your prayers for the coming of the kingdom? Yes. Does he answer those prayers? Yes. Does he delay because he's twiddling his thumbs and has forgotten about you and doesn't care anymore? No, he is accomplishing his purposes. And by the way, aren't you glad he delayed at least up until now so that you could trust Jesus? What if he had come right before then? You're out. It's over. Aren't you glad a little bit that he waited? That's one reason he's still waiting to save all of his elect. He will save his elect. And so he will wait until that is ready, but he will not wait because he's uh, slow to act. When it's time, he will come, and he will come because his people asked him to come. Keep praying. Pray the kingdom now. You want more Samaritan moments where people are changed and they come to worship Jesus? Pray the kingdom now. You want Jesus to come back? Mostly, after reading this text, right? Yeah, I want him to come back. Pray that he'll come back and pray that you can keep praying. So let's back up, remember it. The kingdom is here, what should you do? Faith that worships. The kingdom's coming, what should you do? Stay focused on the true king. And the kingdom is delaying, what should you do? Pray. Pray the kingdom. Pray the kingdom. Last point, the kingdom given. What upholds us? What motivates us? What changes us? What grabs us? What enables us as we consider the coming of the kingdom? Look back at 24, 25 of chapter, what, 17. 
As the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. And I think Jesus was looking forward to that in that moment when he comes back as conquering king. But look at verse 25. But first. But first he, what's the next word? Must. He must suffer many things. What's that about? You know it, remember it. What's that about? He's on a cross. Why is he on a cross? Because I'm the dirty Samaritan who needs to be brought in. And he died so that he could heal me, bring me in. Why did he die on a cross? Because we're among the wicked distracted who deserve devastation of flood and fire. And what did he take for you on the cross? Devastation in your place. And he rose from the dead so that you could have his spirit be justified so that you could pray to the Father in the name of the Son by the power of the Holy Spirit. Because the bottom line on all this is, my friends, Jesus wants to give you his kingdom. He's going to give you his kingdom. And he enabled that on the cross. And as you look to the cross and trust in the cross, that's how you taste it. That's how you see it here and see it grow. That's how you know you're safe when it comes. How do you know you're going to be okay when the wrath falls? The cross, the resurrection. And that's what motivates your praying. So let's back up. So you remember, the kingdom is here. What should you do? Faith that worships Jesus. The kingdom's coming. What should you do? How should you respond? Focus on his kingdom in the midst of everyday life. The kingdom is delayed. What should we be like? Praying. And the kingdom has been given. How? Where do we look? The cross. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, you're too much for us. You're too just and holy and terrifying. And you're too humble and kind and compassionate. We don't even get you. But we love you. And we are so thankful that you have saved us. Help us see the kingdom. Help us see it here. Help us live in the light of the fact that it's coming. Help us pray it in all as we look to and trust in the cross. Make us kingdom people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. And we invite you to visit us Sunday mornings here at Fountain of Life Fellowship. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com.